Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the city of Hamilton is going to spend $30,000 on a fraud hotline to report fraud and waste. Also, we hosted the Chief's Town Hall with Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert, discussed everything from traffic enforcement to the protests at City Hall and Gage Park. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Donald Trump, speaking of Trump, uh, his tirade continues. He uh, doubles down and triples down on his uh, assertion that uh, those people that don't seem to like it in the United States should leave, even though three of the four ladies that uh, he's referring to are actually born and raised in the United States. Anyway, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, to begin with today, a story that caught my eye, and, and I wanted to get some clarification on this, maybe even give you, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this. We'll go to calls on this one in a couple of minutes if you want to jump into the queue right now at 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Uh, this is all about a hotline to report suspected waste here in the city of Hamilton. And uh, the city has launched this hotline to encourage people to report fraud and waste where they see it. Uh, it can be used by public employees, can be used by city employees. Uh, you will be totally anonymous, apparently. Uh, and the uh, upward cost about this, we're told, is about $30,000 a year for three years on this pilot project. Is this really necessary? I guess that's the question a lot of people are asking. Do we really need a, well, what somebody referred to it as a snitch line? I want to get your thoughts on that in just a couple of minutes. You can jump onto the phones right now and hop on uh, on queue at 645-3221, star 9900. Email is bkelly at 900chml.com. And, of course, on Twitter, at chml, Bill Kelly. Uh, but before we go to your calls and your thoughts, I want to bring uh, Chad Collins into the conversation, the uh, city councilor for Ward 5 in the East End. Chad, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Your thoughts on this? This caught an awful lot of people off guard, and and the characterization that one listener used was was this is a snitch line. Do we really need one? Do we? Well, I think what we learned uh, through the report and through the presentation is that uh, it's very common these days for government agencies to have or provide this service. Two thirds of uh, those across the country uh, of uh, similar size um, city municipality as Hamilton already have these services in place for their municipalities. And so it's something we debated a number of years ago. Um, we had a, a good discussion around it, at least I did with our, our former auditor. And um, when Mr. Brown, Charles Brown, our new auditor, was uh, you know came under our employee, he suggested that uh, you know this is the route to go, that this seemed to be standard operating procedure for, for government agencies. And so uh, very small cost associated with it. Bill, you mentioned uh, 30000 but at committee level, uh, Mr. Brown advised that we're now down to about $17,000 with a third-party vendor. And I, I think the bulk of the costs come with the investigations. And so if someone calls in um, and the investigation seems to have merit, uh, then it's up to our staff then to start digging and, and trying to find information to verify or not whatever's come through. And so the, the bulk of, of the resources, I would suspect, will, will come in the form of staff time in terms of uh, following up on these items. And and as we learned, other municipalities, as I mentioned, Toronto, Winnipeg, Ottawa, and others already have these in place, and they seem to be working. So this is a pilot program. We'll, uh, we'll get quarterly updates, and at the end of three years, we'll determine whether or not this is a service we want to continue on a permanent basis. What are you essentially looking to find here? Is, I mean, is this whole thing going to start up, or has started up, I guess, Chad, uh, mm-hmm. be- because there's a, a, an, there's a feeling that there is a lot of waste going on or a perceived feeling of waste? I mean, are, are, are you hearing from staff and from the public that says, that, look, we, we need to have some, some form for us to, to express this? Well, I think we can point to incidents, not just here in Hamilton with, with our municipality, but to not-for-profit sector, 
we, we can look at the private sector in terms of where we've seen instances of uh, either fraud or, or waste. And I, and I think this pilot project uh, will help us try to determine or engage the level of, of what kind of problems we're looking at here locally. And so there's, you know, there's no shortage of these things that pop up in the newspaper. We hear them on the radio, you know, every week or two. Um, so a couple of them were mentioned at the committee by committee members when they were asking the questions. And so I, I think it's an open question, Bill, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, how big of a problem do we have here locally? We've, we've certainly had our own problems uh, with the municipality in the past. Uh, you know, I'm not going to start listing them out, but, our, you know, your listeners will, will know that we've had some very high-profile uh, issues at the city as it relates to waste or as it relates to, um, you know, the funds um, um, that have been, um, you know, taken by an employee or employees. And so these things happen from time to time, and they happen in all industries. It's not unique to the city, and it's not unique to the public sector. And so I, I think Mr. Brown has brought forward a program that uh, will help us, again, try to understand and engage um, from the anonymous and confidential tips that come in to the, to the hotline or over, or over the web. Um, and it's available, um, as was mentioned, on the city's website. Uh, we have uh, postings in our public libraries and other buildings. And so it's not just for our employees who may be aware of these things. It's for the general public as well as vendors who may be doing business with the city who think that there may be an issue that needs to be investigated. I, I'm not going to start listing those things either. I, I, but mm-hmm. I, I don't want to start dredging up old, old stories about that stuff. But in a lot of the cases that, that I can recall, anyway, off the top of my head, Chad, the audit department actually uncovered most of the stuff on their own. Uh, maybe not as in, in, in you know in a speedy fashion, but I mean that was after the fact. It was being reactive as opposed to to, to proactive on situations like this. I, I guess the bigger concern. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say it's probably a combination of the two, Bill. You're right. In terms of our audit department's been terrific over the last number of years in terms of uncovering, uh, you know, some an- anomalies or issues within the organization that need to be addressed, and they've been publicly exposed, and rightfully so. Uh, but we've also had from time to time tips come in from the general public who have noticed something, or, and our employees, I think, is probably the, the best route that we've seen, again, without listing or rhyming off those issues that we've dealt with over the last number of years. Many of those tips have come in from our employees or the public. And so this really formalizes that process, um, and, and, it, and it helps us through a third party try to address maybe more um, cases than we're accustomed to dealing with on an annual basis. So I, I just want to get clear on procedure here. You mentioned this third mm-hmm. party, this uh, this company that's going to be involved in this, uh, Whistleblower Security Incorporated is apparently operating this hotline. Uh, will they actually do the investigation? I think it's a combination of uh, they'll do the original intake process, and then from there they will meet with our audit staff to determine whether external resources are needed. And, and with some of the issues we've dealt with in the past, we have uh, we've required external resources to assist with the investigation. And or they'll determine whether or not it's something that uh, our staff can handle on their own. So it's a it's a 24-7 intake process. We have a speak-up campaign, I think, as was mentioned. I, I think it went out through a news media release uh, not too long ago, Bill. And uh, people will see that speak-up branding with the information that will lead one to the city's website, as well as the tw- uh, 24-7 uh, phone number that will assist residents in terms of um, providing that information. And I think our staff emphasized that the more information that someone can provide us, Will help determine whether or not there's merit with the uh, with the complaint or the issue that's been raised, and um, will help us uh, either prevent additional fraud from occurring, 
or crack down on waste that may be occurring in, in one or more of the city departments. So this this company then, uh, this whistleblower security, is, they'll, they'll make the first uh, value judgment as to whether or not this is worthy of pursuit. Correct, yeah. And if they say, hey, I think there's something going on here, then they'll, they'll, they, they bring city staff into the procedure at that point, do they? That's right. I think it would be probably through the audit uh, office first, and then obviously operating departments will be involved, whatever operating department is in question. And our, our city auditors would work with the senior management to determine where they go from there. Uh, is this all going to be? I know that the the people who may call in and and and, and you know suggest that there's some wrongdoing or something going on, they're going to remain anonymous. But is the procedure going to be anonymous too? I mean, or are we the public going to know that hey, such and such is being investigated right now? Uh, well, I think the investigations would be confidential until they they're reported back to council. And so, where there's criminality involved, or or where there may be some HR issues, I mean, those those issues are always built um, you know confidential. But um, but the subject matter themselves are oftentimes disclosed by us. And, and so, again, without going through the list of those issues we've dealt with in the past, there will be quarterly updates to the committee that uh, talk about how many complaints were received, um, how many were acted upon, how many be- became full investigations. Uh, I'm assuming we'll, we'll receive something along the lines of, you know, here's the cost uh, to external service providers. Here's the amount of time that it's taking our staff to investigate these issues. And, you know, most importantly, I think for us is, you know, here are the cost savings associated with these, um, um, with these investigations, or um, there's the whole issue of just fraud prevention, the fact that someone called in and prevented fraud from uh, consistently occurring in, in one or more areas is a savings in itself. But the point I was making, for instance, if the integrity commissioner is doing an investigation, we, we pretty much know who's being investigated. Oftentimes we understand what's being investigated, too. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a, It's a public process, although the investigation may not be. The fact that th- that it's happening is, is usually, uh, you know, the public is informed and council certainly informed. Uh, will council be informed that it's a certain department or a certain individual may be under investigation, or is that going to be done, uh, again, in confidence? I guess it depends on the subject matter. So we will receive quarterly updates, and we've yet to receive our first update because this was just launched recently. So I, I think it's an open question, Bill, in terms of how much information we'll get once these uh, investigations are underway. Um, if I compare it to the past, again, if the if it's a, a criminal investigation or if there's an HR issue, and I assume almost all of them would involve an element of HR, we may just know the basics, and those, those basics may be released to the public in, in a general form. And um, as with other incidents, uh, when they're wrapped up, we are able, we're in a better position then to disclose more information to the public. And I, and I think that's an important part of it, right? I mean, if this is to continue on a, on a permanent basis, we're going to have to prove um, in a very transparent way that there was a benefit to the program and there were savings. Are you concerned about possible abuses of this program? I, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, they, they yeah. can be frivolous things like, hey, you know, I just drove by and I saw two city workers leaning on their shovels. I mean, you know, that's that's the frivolous end of things. But it can also be a vindictive thing, too. And we've seen that happen with some of the complaints that have actually gone before the integrity commissioner that that are, you know, they had no basis. But the same thing, the investigation is ongoing. And, and, and there's always that concern that somebody with an axe to grind may decide, hey, you know, what, I'm going to plant an idea here. Yeah, it's definitely a possibility, and there's no doubt about that. And I think that the you know that information will come back to us as well in terms of you know how many cases had merit, and how many of those were deemed uh, you know frivolous or vexatious. 
And um, and I, you know, I could say that we're accustomed to dealing with this already. I, I think what Charles has presented um, and his office is a very streamlined process to deal with complaints that we would be accustomed to receiving already. And I think the program itself advertises the fact that this service is available to the public. So there may be people, employees, who haven't um, felt the urge or the need to come forward in the past, and, and maybe with this public campaign that we have, and that would include residents and vendors as well, they may feel more inclined then to open up to the city, knowing that there's some confidentiality, knowing that there's, you know, that this is a, now a service that we provide uh, with a third party, um, and, and they may feel more inclined to call in and, and, and launch the investigation. And so I, I think it's, you know, there's certainly that downside bill. There's, it's a slippery slope in terms of offering the service, and, and I think the numbers we'll see after probably, you know, half a year or a year's time as to whether or not there's substance to to any or, or all of the of the investigations that have been reported. A lot of these things that have gone on in the past, though, Chad, uh, even the beginnings of some of these actually have been through the, the counselor's office. I mean, you get those phone calls uh, and your, your counsel colleagues on a pretty consistent basis uh, about what they consider to be perceived uh, wrongdoings or any number of things like that. Some of them confidential, some of them not so much. Uh, mm-hmm. If in that process that you've just described now, you get those phone calls in right now, and all, do you pass those on to this company? Uh, well, I think if, in terms of those that we've received in the past, we've passed them along to our auditor. And um, I, I think the company that you've referenced, the third party, is is essentially um, it, it's providing that that third party process that may. It, um, encourage or make our employees feel uh, more comfortable in terms of passing it along. For them to call another city employee, um, it, it, it may discourage them or they just may not feel as comfortable as going through a process like that. So I think providing that third party um, gives that extra layer of uh, almost like a shield for someone to call in. Although we do have a whistleblower policy already, um, I, th- I think it provides that buffer. And, and maybe make someone feel more comfortable in terms of providing um, the information. Um, whereas, you know, right now it's left to either call in to a supervisor, uh, call the audit uh, office uh, directly, or or another senior employee, or, or our offices as well. So, you know, it, it seems to be working in other municipalities. I, I think Mr. Brown has uh, checked in with his counterparts in, in those areas. And uh, for many of those that were, you know, that I referenced earlier before, I, I think uh, Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Toronto were a couple that come to mind. Um, you know, they've been through this process in terms of the pilot. It's yielded results for them, and they've decided to go forward with it on a, on a permanent basis. And for us, um, you know, the, the low dollar cost uh, value associated with this, again, he's down to $17,000 for the first first year, is a very small investment to make and hopefully you know as i mentioned after the first couple of updates hopefully it's going to start yielding some results yeah and i guess that's really beyond what we what we already yeah seen. that's really when the discussion will occur when you've got some hard data in front of you you can say this is worthwhile or not or uh, we'll, exactly. we'll have to hold off our conversation until then chad listen appreciate the time jumping in here and explaining this to us thanks so much Thanks, Bill. Have a good one. You too. Ward 5 Counselor Chad Collins. Your thoughts on this? Uh, you can reach us on email, bkelly at 900chml.com, and on Twitter at chml Bill Kelly. I already got a couple of emails here from some folks uh, using that, that moniker that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, that it's nothing more than a snitch line. But it may, if it's uh, as effective as, as uh, Counselor Collins mentioned in some of these other cities, uh, you know, root out some of the, the maybe, not necessarily fraudulent activity, but just ways that uh, the city can save money. I mean, we're in a financial crisis here, as just about every other city is these days, I suppose. 
And I guess they're kind of, it's, this is akin to maybe looking for nickels and dimes in the seat cushions, but uh, they've got to find some ways, and uh, we'll see. Time will tell, I guess. I'm a little skeptical, but, you know, I, I'll wait for the data. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Chiefs Town Hall is about to happen. Chief Eric Gert, good to have you back here. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thanks for having us on, Bill. Uh, how's the summer been so far? Uh, it's been steady. Um, we're continuing to see, for example, Red Hill. Uh, the, the public may or may not know that the city finance special duties there to do enforcement. And we've seen a drop in the speeds. Obviously, you've got the reconfiguration. Of the not road. everybody. I was there on the weekend. Oh, I, I, saw, I saw your officers pulling, if, actually uh, going down and then coming back up a couple hours later. There were, uh, there were cars pulled out of both sides. So not everybody got the message, I guess. Correct. And thanks for clarifying that. I was talking about the median speed coming down. Yeah. But there's still outliers. And we continue to enforce. And we've handed out uh, hundreds of tickets, actually. And we know that from the outset, there are engineering approaches. There is enforcement. And I'm really pleased to say that the city has stepped up, funded that enforcement, in addition to our regular patrols, where we still do enforcement, but this is dedicated enforcement. And then most recently, Councillor Collins took it back to the city and they've extended that. And I think, you know, for the public safety, particularly on this roadway and all the things that have gone on to date, it's multifaceted approach. And we're quite pleased to have that funding in place. Uh, traffic safety and, and those concerns always seem to be paramount. Invariably, those uh, are the lion's share of the calls and, and the emails that we get uh, when we do these town hall meetings because uh, uh, it is all about public safety. Uh, and, and there were some legitimate concerns about the roadway. I know that the city's uh, doing some investigating, and that's going to take some time, I guess, before they, they get any data on that. But in the meantime, uh, enforcement has to be the key element here. Agreed. And actually, our enforcement numbers are up uh, this year, which I'm pleased to see, uh, because that's all roadways where we have, to your point, standing complaints at a variety of locations in the city. And also, our ride lane numbers are uh, continuing. We do it on a year-round basis. Some services may do it just on uh, holiday weekends. We do it all the time. And we do it in rural settings, urban settings. Um, and, you know, if it just Part of it's just the education, and you go, oh, there's ride lanes, okay, uh, next time I won't do ABC or I'll range rides or whatever you're going to do, that's all positive. The uh, city just announced that they're going to be dropping the speed limit, the uh, the, the fallback speed limit, down to 40 uh, kilometers uh, in, on many residential streets. Uh, it's already that way in school zones, and that's actually going to drop down to 30. Do, do police get any say in that? Do you weigh in on that? Um it's more I know it's a political decision. It's more of an engineering function, and I think the fundamental premise is when you have lower speeds, if there are, in fact, collisions, that the uh, extent of injuries and the rate of injuries go down. So it's a general premise around, uh, again, personal and public safety. Support that. Uh, you've got sometimes people frustrated, um, and some of them, if you recall years back, you know, every uh, intersection seemed to be another stop sign, and what they found from that was uh, people accelerate between the stop signs, which leads to increased pollution and frustration, and then people are making bad decisions. Uh, I'm not saying it's an excuse. Uh, with the 40K drop in those neighborhoods where it's happened, in particular where you've got uh, narrow roadways and there may be parking, uh, in my view, it's not a bad idea. Um, what we'll be asked to do, obviously, is enforcement uh, when people are not complying with the drop. Well, the one that came to mind, and uh, we had this discussion with the, uh, the councillors uh, last week when they were having this discussion and this debate, was Kenilworth Avenue, which has been in place for some time now. Council Marula moved a motion some time ago uh, to have Kenilworth reduced to 40, yep. uh, much to the chagrin of a lot of people coming off the Kenilworth access. But has ha, you, it's been there long enough that you can actually uh, uh, accumulate some data on that. Is that working? Are, are we seeing a reduction in, in collisions and in, in, in problems? Yeah, I don't have that specific data, but I do know historically, if you look at Normandy and, and uh, uh, Kenilworth, which is just below the bridge as you come down the yeah. access, 
that was a, a, a place where we were asked to do enforcement uh, because they're exceeding the 50K zone. So the 40K zone, and I've driven the roadway now. When, when you add parking as well, now you're down to one lane. In my experience, both in traffic and otherwise, every time you've got a four-lane road, um, speeds tend to increase. So the one that comes to mind is Upper Paradise. So what they did is reconfigure it, uh, make it a turning lane in the center, and then reduce it to one lane each way. And that actually has an effect. So I'm all for engineering applications. Not to answer your I don't have the data on yeah. Kenworth, but I'm all for engineering applications that you know ultimately meet the goal and reduce the speed. Uh, we're going to go to some calls. I, I, we'll get a lot of other things I want to get on the on the table here, but we'll do that in uh, in passage of time here. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Uh, those are the numbers to call. And uh, email bkelly at 900chml.com and Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Questions, comments for uh, Chief of Police Eric Gert on the Chief's Town Hall here at 900chml. Uh, James, you're first up on this. Welcome to the program, James. Hey, thank you very much. Listen, with respect to the Red Hill, I just want to really thank the police and the city of Hamilton. They they really stepped up and uh, took care of this problem. But I still think the whole issue of distracted drivers still comes into play on the Red Hill. I take the Red Hill every day when I go up to my farm, and I still see people talking on their cell phones. I still see people being aggressive by not allowing cars to merge on, you know, especially on the, the Barton off-ramps, on-ramps. But I just, overall, very pleased. But I think the police presence is key uh, to keeping accidents down and keeping drivers in check. Everyone seems to think they're they're in a race to get somewhere. Yeah, thank you, James, and I appreciate those comments. And, and I agree yeah. with it. It's kind of what Bill said earlier, is you've still got the problem of those who will exceed. Uh, we just did uh, overnight. Uh, officers did some uh, racing offenses where they're doing 123 in a 50K zone. And you say, you know, why are you going 73 kilometers over? And we know what 50K zones are like. Usually have yeah. residences. And, you know, for me, it's always the potential of a kid who you don't see and they're behind the car. And, and you know, you don't want that. But to your point, the distracted driving, you know, whether it's applying makeup, uh, certainly cell phones continue to be our nemesis, and the whole content of distracted driving remains an issue. So one of the things uh, we've done, this is a dual focus, is our, our vehicles, we're, we're actually moving to um, Explorers, so it's a higher platform. Uh, that's right. in Mark Cruisers, but we also use them in plane door capacities for some of our traffic enforcement. It gives you that view down into the, um, the driver's side of the vehicle. Uh, so, you know, we're looking, that helps us with enforcement too, because you can substantiate that somebody's in fact on their phone in a handheld position and all the other things that people do. So, and then you just talked about the fundamental issue of driver courtesy. And I always figure, you know what, um, it's so much easier. Just back off the gas, let somebody in, make it happen seamlessly. And, you know, if you think about yourself sometimes when you're merging from a, uh, a feeder lane, you know, it's difficult to squeeze in there in a safe fashion. You're looking to the left, trying to make sure you don't drive in the person in front, all that stuff going on. So exactly. to your courtesy piece... You know, think about if you're the one trying to merge on and how it might benefit you. So I kind of operate from that principle and let somebody in. It's, it's just so much easier. And then you don't get road rage. You don't get people frustrated, people gesticulating with their hands and the formats you know, all that type of stuff. I totally agree. And that's where I think sometimes where you want the police to just be up the road pulling cars over and saying, hey, listen, there was no reason why, you know, you didn't back off and allow that car to get in. You know, yep. why are you, yep. were you speeding up just to just to be a bit of an annoyance? 
Yeah, and a quick anecdote. I was coming back from a meeting in Peel. It was nighttime. I'm in a plane door vehicle, but I have lights. Yep. And in my rearview mirror, very last minute, I see somebody whipping up. I wouldn't even know their speed, but obviously it was well in excess of mine. So I pulled in, uh, pulled them over actually on the Highway 6 ramp up towards Guelph off, right. of, uh, off the 403. And, you know, two people stopped and said, you know, thank you, officer, so much. And I mean, I know it's a small thing, and you got to do it safely. That's the other thing. If you're pulling over and obstruct the lane, that might not be a good idea. Um, but I know that sentiment is out there, and, and generally speaking, people go, you know, you've stopped them, um, and you, you you've spent the time dealing with it. I think there's huge support, which is your comment, when we do traffic enforcement. And for our members, you know, think, well, you know, I'm giving out tickets to so-and-so and it's, you know, costs them a lot of money. And, but on the counterpoint is you've got, I'll call it the kind of the cheering squad who say, you know what, I appreciate when you pull somebody who's operating in a dangerous fashion. And that was the end result as opposed to looking at the carnage of an accident or something else. Well, yeah, but is there not an opportunity to, to bring back photo radar just from a traffic um, stance. I mean, when people hear and see photo radar, they back off. It's an automatic deterrent. Yeah, and James, and I'm going to let uh, the chief answer that. Sorry, sorry yeah. I'm going to let you go because I got a lot of other folks on the line. Okay, but you well, listen, some thank, le- thank you very, very much. I really appreciate. I really that appreciate stuff. that too. That's gonna, this photo radar is going to be a political decision, but certainly uh, you've talked about it in the past. Yeah, and I'm in support because I think it, much like the other engineering applications, it leads to the desired behavior. And uh, I know down in Nova Scotia, for example, they do have it in New Brunswick. I believe it's New Brunswick. Um, so certain provinces have instituted it in certain conditions. And I think city council is working on that in terms of safety zones and uh, the possibility of it. So, yeah, everything that helps, that'd be good. That frees up another line, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. This is the Chief's Town Hall, the Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. Uh, Rob, you're next on the program. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Bill. <clears throat> uh, Oski Wee Wee, first of all. Yep. Uh, just, just had to uh, say that. And then um, I had a question, just uh, me and my buddies were talking the other day. And I know that there's been these, uh, the protests that have been happening at City Hall and, and the, the incidents that happened at uh, Gage Park and whatnot. But what happened, uh, we're, we're under the, the, the premise that there's a, a law on the books as far as gathering in a, as, gathering in a public place and using a disguise. So we're curious how come there's no charges being pressed against any of the uh, the protesters dressed in black that are all uh, masked up so that you can't, so that they're hiding their identity. Yeah, so fundamentally how it works is if you have a peaceful gathering that meets the requirements of the Constitution, which is that it's peaceful assembly, it's lawful, um, think about, and, and this is why the law is the way it is, if you're in the winter and you're wearing a balaclava because it's cold, um, there's no provision in the law that says you can only be masked when it's you know such and such a temperature. What happens is if you start to engage in criminal conduct and are masked, there are offenses that flow from that, provided you've got the criminal conduct that links into being masked to commit an offense. So there's not, and there may be misinformation about that, just showing up at a public event and being uh, having your face covered is not an offense, but it's when it departs into either an lawful assembly, a riot, 
which is a fairly high standard, um, and other offenses that can happen relative to that. So, uh, you know, we've looked at this certainly from a public order standpoint, whether it was G20, uh, the Stanley Cup riots out in Vancouver. Um, there's case law on this in terms of what the standards are before the courts. So I hope that clarifies a bit of it, but I, I understand what you're talking about. It's when it does uh, get into criminal conduct that then uh, that's considered. Yeah, so so in the situation with the Gage Park thing, what about the people wearing the pink masks then? Because that was, uh, I wouldn't really call that like a peaceful assembly at that time. So that was that was one of the, the contexts that uh, the question was kind of raised at was yeah. uh, in the case of the, the people wearing the pink masks at Gage Park, mm-hmm. that that escalated into violence. Right. And as far as I know, there weren't any charges uh, as far as disguising it as people uh, unlawfully or in a in a violent uh, grouping that uh, were wearing a disguise. So that was one. That was one, that was the context. Yep that we were talking about in the specific uh, instance I was asking about. Yeah, so there are criminal charges before the courts, which I won't speak to, because uh, the proper form is actually uh, before the courts with a trier of fact uh, okay. for all those cases. And I think what you'll find is as uh, those charges move forward, I'm sure they'll garner much public attention. And at that point, the evidence uh, will be provided. And we have requirements to disclose, obviously, to uh, those persons charged. We have a requirement that the Crown reviews that. And, uh, and then prosecutes or not, and that's their discretion because we have different thresholds. We have reasonable grounds to arrest in the first place, the Crown reviews for reasonable prospect of conviction, and the test in the courts, which I've spoken to many times, is you have to be found uh, that it's beyond a reasonable doubt that you conducted uh, what you are alleged to have committed. So all those things and processes uh, are still outstanding. And uh, in my view, and it's normally our way with criminal offenses, uh, they are the jurisdiction the courts decide. Because we are not the decider. We yeah. do the arrest, present the facts before the court is the courts that decide. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just wanted thanks for... Uh Thanks for taking my call, and I definitely wanted to uh, say, you know, we definitely appreciate the uh, the work that you guys do, and we definitely support that thing through line countrywide. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks for the call, Rob. Appreciate you joining us on the program today. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Uh, we're going to get calls. I'm glad Rob brought this up because we wanted to get involved in uh, where you are uh, vis-a-vis the, the reaction to what's happened over the last month or so, of course. And you referenced Gage Park and, of course, some of the City Hall decisions. Uh, you've told us in, in past programs that uh, uh, that you there was going to be an investigation. Now, there's a police services board meeting, the first one since these events occurred, uh, coming up this Thursday. Will there be a report presented at that time with, with what you found, who, who you've discovered? Yeah. How, so let me revisit that because sure. I looked at the transcript. We've got, got about a minute here. We'll pick it up on the other yeah, side. I think but I can go, get through just, that. Per- sure. So the question to me was, was there investigation relative to the events at Gage Park? There is. There's a criminal investigation. Would there be p- charges? Well, we've seen what happened there because we didn't witnesses to come forward. We do rely on the public just as in any other investigation. Relative to investigation, that is the purview and the oversight of the governance, and uh, that is the topic for discussion. Obviously, the agenda has been released online uh, for the board meeting on Thursday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chief's Town Hall, Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gerd is with us here in studio. Call just before the break, uh, Chief. Uh, talked a little bit about some of the events that are going on. Uh, at Hamilton, uh, the City Hall, of course, we've had demonstrations. Uh, there has been criticism about the way the police have handled that. Uh, there's been a change, I guess, in, in the protocol. 
over the last couple of weeks. Uh, maybe explain uh, about the confrontation, what was happening during Pride Week, uh, how police were deployed then, uh, and how the, the the changes have been made and exactly what's happening now. My understanding is there's more people uh, on when these things are happening on Saturday night. You actually have more officers on site than you did before. Well, that's actually not the case. Uh, we didn't have more. Okay, we that's had, just what I'm what's being. Rep- I, I'm just telling you what I I'm gotcha. told. We did deploy, and, and I've spoken to this on the previously on the show. Uh, additional resources that required call-ins, uh, and without uh, you know, part of my difficulty throughout this whole thing is I can't get intelligence information. I won't get into tactics and deployment. Uh, I might well just show the playbook to everybody. And uh, our goal, as you know, is public safety. And we have to balance the needs. On that specific date, we had two events going on. And, uh, you know, this is coming up to the board on Thursday. Uh, It's on the agenda. We'll have a number of depositions as well. And depending on uh, the actions of the board, who is my governance body and oversight body amongst many, is uh, they'll make a determination at that time. So I'll be providing a report. I have on this show. I have on a number of other venues. Uh, But, you know, again, for specifics about number of officers deployed and all those other things, we don't normally get into that. Uh, But relative to your question, uh, we have continued to provide that security uh, now at City Hall primarily. Of course, on that date, we had two venues. Um, so we continue to do that. Some of the evolution is, um, you know, you learn from past events and then you'll make adjustments based on that. So uh, I think even the dialogue around what constitutes uh, hate crimes, advocating genociding, advocating hate propaganda, I think there's become better public awareness of what those thresholds are. And we were well aware of that prior to because we had been monitoring the events uh, in terms of what was transpiring at City Hall. And I, I mean, I use this as a touchstone, but you know, if you say I don't like Trudeau, well, quite frankly, my constitutional obligation is to guarantee your free speech if you're assembled peacefully to state make that statement. Where you get into prohibited grounds and identifiable groups, that is a different issue. And the thresholds, as I say, are quite high. It's all established in the case law uh, and the criminal code. Um, and I think I may have cited um, 318 as a section for the disposition on criminal offenses when hate is involved. It's actually uh, 718.2A1, uh, uh, but it's 318 is actually advocating genocide. So just for clarity on that. But, um, you know, uh, you've got to look at the totality of what's going on. They're fluid environments. Part of the issues with intelligence information is it's not always... 100% accurate. If it was, be easy. Uh, so you have to plan for fluid environment contingencies, what happens on day of, what the potentials are down the road. And this has continued for us on the weekends. You know, I was quite glad to see uh, the collection of people over the weekend um, and reasserting um, certainly the interests of the LGBTQ community. I think that's an excellent thing. Uh, y- you know, we'll continue to work um, to develop relationships, uh, continue our relationships. Um, we, you do have to come to the table, in my view, to have a relationship. And if we're going to make changes in our approach, then we need to know what those changes are and to move forward. Uh, and we believe as a service, because we've done this work uh, throughout the years with a variety of communities, it's important work to do. And we agree with that. When there's a potential inflammatory situation, such as some of these demonstrations were in, mm-hmm. in their initial stages, 
Uh, you just cited the, the, the case law and, and the, 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 the parameters. Uh, is, is there a line that has to be crossed before charges are laid where an officer can say, oh, oh, okay, that's you've gone too far? Is it? Uh, and uh, hate speech is one of the elements. I think it's still a very gray area. A lot of people I don't think quite understand. Mm-hmm. And you've heard the comments. I certainly have yep. on this show over the last couple of weeks that, yep. well, police didn't respond uh, fast enough to these sorts of things. They let it grow and they let it fester and then it got out of control. Then they responded. Uh, where is that line, and, and what are officers supposed to do? Are there things that they're looking for, some physical activity or something that has to be said before they can say, okay, we're, we're stepping in? Yeah, and a combination of all those things. I know I spoke to it previously on your show. The balance between, and as I say, it's under Section 2 in the Constitution, which is the supreme law in Canada. Uh, we are obligated, and in my oath of office, I'm obligated to ensure the Constitution is upheld. So if the Constitution tells, and through the case law, that you are entitled to a uh, free speech, provided it is not uh, a violent or riotous situation and you're gathering peacefully. Um, For example, we have shepherded certain protests. Uh, I won't tell you what the acronym means, but it's FT, the police. Um, You know, you can say that and it's not against the law. And then if you're gathering peacefully, then we have to make sure that you uh, are allowed to demonstrate and then uh, keep the peace. To your point about when the line gets crossed, yes, that's based on what the specific officer would observe. But also if we're talking about a command situation, what is the information that's presenting to that commander, both in terms of deployment, when it breaches, uh, um, you know, something like a riot, for example, there's requirements um, for the mayor or a key person to declare a riot. Uh, think about the uh, mechanics of that and has to do a proclamation um, in, in, you know, in certain cases where it's just not feasible, you don't, but you still have to undertake efforts to do so. Um, so there's a variety of contexts. And again, both with the Canadian situation, the international situation, uh, this has been examined in terms of, like I say, G20, uh, the Vancouver riots, that whole when does it switch over becomes a matter of taking in the totality of what's happening in front of you. What intelligence information do you have? Where do you best deploy your resources? As you've got to do them in a variety of locations. It's quite a fluid environment. I want to ask you about protocol here because I'm just picking up on some of the things that we've heard on this program over the last couple of days and some of the concerns that have been raised by some of the people that were there or others certainly have strong opinions about this. Uh, one of the criticisms that was leveled, and I assume is going to be addressed at your meeting on Thursday, uh, is uh, when it got physical, when there were confrontations. Uh, the, I'm going to use the characterization of some of the people that were there, said police hung back. Uh, and I know that there's a concern about safety in situations like that, because uh, even at the Gage Park situation, there, I think there were only two officers initially around that area where the, the confrontation was starting, and obviously a lot more people when you count all the protesters. Uh, is there a protocol there that if you're outnumbered, do you stand back and ask for help or do you jump into a fray? What, what's, what's the officer's duty in a situation like that? Yeah, so let me take it in the context of that. But, you know, let's talk about just a, a bar fight or a disturbance at a public event. Y- officers do have to weigh in officer safety. You do have to look at the mechanics of being outnumbered. Um, you know, because we carry use of force options, if you're incapacitated, that now becomes uh, publicly available, potentially. You have to think about all those things. And that's our use of force continuum. Relative to the public order unit, um, there are ways to deploy that effectively as well. It sometimes takes time to marshal that number of people uh, in a particular format and tactics and all the rest of that. So, uh, you know, without getting into the specifics again, um, officer safety is 
a concern. We've also got to look at the potential of what is happening in front. And that's an individual decision by that officer at the time of. And that can be as simple as intervening a domestic. You may have four or five combatants for whatever reason. You may have to wait to get back up. It depends on the situation. There's no kind of uh, standard answer. It's an assessment by the officer at the time with what is happening in front of them. And, and that's obviously a split-second decision. That's that there's no predetermined <coughs> excuse me area that you say, okay, now get in there. Or how long does it take for backup to get in a situation like that? Because that's one of the other criticisms that that uh, you know that it seemed to take in some people's minds an inordinately long period of time before extra officers showed up. Yeah, and I'll answer that question with, obviously, that's what is probably going to be suggested at the board meeting. Uh, I look forward to the review of that, uh, a fulsome review, and uh, depending where the board goes with that, uh, there is still potential for OIPRD complaints where that oversight body has the authority to investigate those uh, complaints. Uh, So, uh, you know, it's a totality of uh, the review of the entire evidence, and I think that that is really what's being asked for, as I said at the outset, you know, get into what the intelligence information, our tactics, all those other things. Um, You know, I I understand the public would like to hear all that, uh, but there's certain sensitivities with that piece as well. This goes back to your earlier statement about showing the playbook? In essence, yeah, because we know, and you know, it's certainly been borne out, uh, that either uh, demonstrations, protests, people acting potentially in a criminal manner will continue. And we have to, you know, be diligent about how we approach that and also be thoughtful about how we intervene in that. And again, if it doesn't cross the line, then you, what you have is a peaceful protest with people who have dissenting opinions. Where it broaches in a hate crime, that's a different issue. Because the, you have to, I, I guess, look at the composition. I think that's one of the things that, that caused some, some concern, certainly, and maybe some, some misreading of what's going on. There were some people there that just wanted to raise, you know what, uh, others who were there that, that just wanted to protest. I mean, that, which is legal. That's to do that. Others are are just wanting to stir the pot, and they're they're you know professionals at that. And they, as you say, they go to G twenty meetings. They go all over the place. And uh, there are a lot of people that were involved in these protests, and the ones we see at City Hall that don't live here. They're not citizens. They're not community members. They're just here to stir up uh, trouble in situations like this. Uh, you know about this. You're getting information about this. How does how does police respond to something like that? Well, and again, right, that determination on the ground by who is who, and do you have just somebody watching? Do you have somebody um, who is just uh, participating peacefully? And then do you have agitators? And you'll know one of the tactics of Black Block, by the way, um, is uh, they'll um, wear different layers of clothing. Uh, part of what they did at G20 was actually construct a black shield. Um, they changed the clothes, get rid of the uh, clothes they had, and then have a new set of clothing to go in and blend in with, in many cases, a peaceful crowd. If I'm a black block protester, then probably that's a, a good tactic uh, from my point of view. Uh, does that help us when we're trying to identify people? And they say, well, they had a black mask and they had black uh, clothes and this and that. Um, yeah, that person doesn't have that now. And you didn't see their face? No. So, you know, identity is always a fact and issue when we're dealing with criminal offenses. So, you know, the tactics make it more difficult. You made a comment on the show when you were here last month, and I want to bring that up again because you've heard a lot of pushback on Mm -hmm. it. Uh, I certainly have on this program. Uh, You suggested, and I'll paraphrase this, but you're essentially saying that had you been invited to the Pride event that the the police presence would have been different. Uh, and that's been interpreted. Maybe some people suggest misinterpreted by an awful lot of people. Uh, and you've heard, <coughs> excuse me, you've heard the criticism about this. I'd like to get your response to the to what you've heard in the criticism. Okay. Uh, some suggesting you should actually t- retract that statement and say that's, or or maybe 
because uh, I've heard two different interpretations of this, and I'm sure you have too. Some suggesting that, well, you know, we would have been faster and there would have been more of us there, but you guys didn't want us, so, you know, that, that, that determined exactly what we were going to do. Uh, and and I, I, want, I want to put that on the table. I want to mm-hmm. give you an opportunity to respond to some of the criticism that you've heard about it. No, and I understand that. And it's, we have to work within the conditions that were uh, presented to us. Uh, I don't take offense, and I, I, I never did. If you're not invited to a recruiting booth, that's fine. Uh, some uh, events, not just this, were asked and others were not. I don't take great uh, umbrage to that. Uh, with regard to respecting the wishes of the organizers who did ask us not to be inside the perimeter, although we had plainclothes officers in there, um, we respected that wish. That changes uh, the dynamics of how it works, but certainly it never entered into uh, you know, less resources or anything like that. I think what's not being said is we were dealing with the issues on two fronts. One, at City Hall where the intelligence information, I'll get into it, but uh, presented that that would be where the major altercation was going to happen. We actually had uh, our resources deployed handling that situation when uh, the other merged, but it's not like we neglected it and we had other resources dedicated to. So, you know, my composition of uh, officers in was not the normal compliment. Uh, I'd, in fact, uh, authorized Collins to have people available. And from a public order standpoint, we deployed public order. Uh, you know, some of the other options were, no, I'll just do it with uh, our regular duty officers. And no, that wasn't the case. We knew the potential. That's why we had public order. That's why we were able to have that many officers deployed down to Gage Park when, in fact, things did uh, arise. So, you know, in response to, did you do it differently because of that? No. Uh, all it did was uh, create a different context to how to do it, but that's not unusual. There's other occasions where they ask us and, you know, um, where they say, please don't do that, but do this. Uh, quite frankly, I said, well, you know, I'm going to ignore your wishes because, um, you know, you tell me it's causing fear, but I'm going to say, well, it's a public place. I'm going to deploy them anyway. Um, I think I would have faced criticism for that. So we were trying to strike a balance between the operational needs, the requests from the organizers, and you know, balance the needs between two locations. The other thing we had going on is business continuity. All the other calls for service, uh, you know, that happen on a daily basis. So all those things enter into the dynamics of deployment. And, you know, we've seen post and we have not changed in terms of our format for allocating resources. Um, If the need arises based on the intelligence, we will deploy the resources. And in fact, um, you know, there'll be a bill for the board this year for the resources that we've used in addition to our standing resources. I don't think I'm going to take criticism for that, but that's a cost. And you've also got to balance that. But that didn't enter into the equation. I wasn't looking at, oh, I want to avoid costs. I said, we need to do this. And we did. Some are suggesting that uh, as a result of what happened, uh, the series of events even after the confrontation uh, and the way that, <clears throat> excuse me, police were deployed in a number of situations that uh, that an apology is required uh, from, for the actions of police, uh, from the alleged comments that somebody said that some of your officers on site may or may not have made. Uh, and for the uh, for the reaction that has happened here, that I'm going to ask the same question, by the way, mm-hmm. of, of the mayor when he's here tomorrow. But yeah. I'll ask you, is, it requ- is an apology required? Well, and this is the problem. You've got one side of the story, but not the alternate. And I think, you know, if we go to a, um, an investigation or an overview or a review, however the board determines, that will come out in due course. Uh, in addition, it will come out if there are, in fact, uh, complaints from the public relative to this event. And what you've got is one side of the story, and then we need to respond in front of an adjudicated body. I don't think um, that it's productive 
to have uh, a trial or a review strictly in the media. I think we have oversight bodies. They have authority to review those things. And those things are in place for particular reasons. And as I say, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, the review and the full um, review of that uh, by those adjudicated bodies. If you had to do it all over again, would you do it the same way? Well, that's always, are you open to learning from events? We're always open to learning from events. Um, we have to make the decisions based on the information uh, to go back retro and say, well, you know, I uh, would have done this, 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 and this. Uh, there may be some changes, but I think it would require, you know, where we want to go with this whole thing is it's a relationship. Uh, when we're dealing with events, when we're dealing with people, we want to respect their wishes. Uh, at the same time, uh, there may have been uh, opportunities for both sides to say, here's the potential. I think there can be learning on both sides of it and enter a dialogue that has the common goal of what's the best way to do this to ensure uh, as much as we can that we have a safe environment for all involved. And I think what you've seen is uh, post with the issues at City Hall, we've made some changes. But that relationship that you just referenced is, is a rather acrimonious relationship right now, as it is with, with City Council and, and, and some members of this community. How do, you, how, do you, how do you deal with this? How do you heal it? The, the status quo is simply not going to be acceptable. Well, what I'll say is, you know, it's, it's, it's about relationship building. You have to have two people at the table to do so. We have been reaching out. We've made some successes. I'm not going to say it's a, a glowing success through the years. You've got the larger dynamic because they've referred to political events 50 years ago. They've referred to events in other jurisdictions. It all enters into the equation. I think if you're going to advance and move things forward, then you do have to meet. You have to have frank dialogue. And then you need to be positive in terms of how you can affect changes for both parties. And I look forward to doing that work. We always have. We work with our community regularly. Uh, this particular sector, um, you know, there are specific needs, and I get that part. The fear, that's concerning. Uh, the reporting of offenses. We came out uh, with a reporting guide for trans um, reporting of offenses, whether it's domestics or hate crime or all those things, will continue to advance that because, in my view, when you enter into criminality, our obligation is to investigate that in a sensitive manner, and we'll continue to do that work. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert, thanks as always for coming in and uh, for your candid answers to the questions. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Police Services Board meeting is a public meeting on Thursday in Hamilton City Hall uh, for those who are interested. Thanks again, Chief. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.